I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending June 5th. In this episode, Kurt Seavers is the new CEO of NXP, a job he's been groomed for for several years. We have an exclusive interview with Seavers, who discusses where NXP is going and how he's going to get it there. Also, quantum computing seems to threaten the very idea of cryptography, but that's far from a guarantee. Today on the program, we talk with Helena Hanshu from Rambus, who is one of the cryptography experts helping to devise algorithms to stand up against the most powerful computers man can conceive of. NXP Semiconductors is one of the biggest IC companies in the world. For at least the last six years, it has been ranked as number 12 or thereabouts in terms of revenue. Since 2009, NXP has been led by CEO Rick Klemmer. During Klemmer's tenure, NXP narrowed its focus on a small number of markets where it could excel. Today, those markets include automotive, industrial and the Internet of Things, mobile, and communications infrastructure. Clemmer, when he became CEO, gathered around him a set of executives to help him steer NXP where he wanted it to go. One of those executives was Kurt Seavers, who had joined the company in 1995 and quickly rose through NXP's ranks. In 2018, Seavers was promoted to company president, and just this March, at age 50, was tapped to succeed Clemmer as CEO. International editor Junko Yoshida recently caught up with Seavers on a video call. Here's part of that conversation. So you joined NXP 25 years ago. Actually, I think at that time it was Philips, right? Was it the first company where you got your job right after you graduated from the university? Uh, yes, the first company. I, I worked in a research institute before that in, uh, in, in a physics, uh, solid-state physics research not for very long, but there was not a company because it was really a research. Uh, it was an arm of a university. From a company perspective, uh, that is indeed, uh, that was my first job. Okay. And you are a physicist by education. Physics and information technology. Okay. So what made you decide to work for Philips at that time? Actually, my, my horizon in those days was, if you will, very limited, Junko. So uh, the reason was simply that um, I actually did an assessment center, Junko, um, and I, I mean, I just did this more for trying myself in, in such a situation because I had this research. And uh, in that assessment center, I had a lot of traction. Uh, but again, it was, it was not that, that I was under pressure to find a job. So it was really more like just trying it. I got fantastic feedback. They offered me a job in the components uh, division, which was about capacitors and, and coils and that kind of stuff. And I had the courage, Junko, which, I mean, everybody told me you are an idiot, but I rejected the job, so I didn't accept it because, you know, I was this arrogant uh, physics person who thought, yeah, who wants to deal with coils and capacitors? I mean, that's boring. So I rejected the job. Um, but Philips in those days was really a nicely horizontally managed company. So they came back after two weeks and offered me a job in the semiconductors division uh, as a product engineer for uh, microcontrollers. 
but much more exciting because a microcontroller, I mean, it was a programmable device and moving to 16-bit architectures, you might remember. So again, I had a very limited perspective. I thought the complexity of the product is what makes life interesting. Uh, yeah. So that's why I indeed said then, yes, I enter and, and here we go. But no, there was no more. It wasn't about because Philips is a great company or anything. <laughs> that's how it all starts for most people, I think. Right. Now, could you compare the company you joined nearly 25 years ago to the company you are now heading up? What do you see as the three big transformation this company has made? Well, I, first of all, I would say the company today from what it used to be is worlds apart. I mean, this is night and day. The, the first biggest difference, and I continue to believe, by the way, also for the future, that is what makes all the difference, is yeah. focus. We know now, and we started to do this back in 2008, I would say, we know what we do, and we know also what we do not do, um, because Semiconductors is offering such a broad array of opportunities every other day. The only way to win is to be very focused on where you really want to lead, where you really want to out-invest, out-perform, and out-innovate your competitors. That focus is what I think has been the biggest challenge for the Philips Semiconductors in those days. It hasn't been sufficiently focused. Uh, so that's one very, very significant difference. Uh, secondly, I mean, the world has just incredibly advanced. I mean, 25 years sounds like relatively short, but in a way, the pace of the business, you know, the way how yeah. this is all operating now is yeah. just incredibly much faster. Mind you that in those days, we didn't even have mobile phones. I mean, I got my first mobile phone, I, I think, more like the end of the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> so, no, that's right. That's so right. Yeah. the whole way of conducting business on a global yeah. scale is very, very different. So I would say focus was point one. Point two is the incredible pace. Thirdly, and I, I'm not sure that is true, but it's at least my today's perspective. I think with what we do today from a technology perspective, we really have things in our hands which advance the world, which really make a difference to society and to the world from what technology does to, uh, to consumers, but again, also to society. Mm. I think that's also a big difference. And we have a, I think we have more perspective on this today, not just selling a product, but actually reducing CO2 emissions. Uh, uh, it's about that kind of stuff, avoiding accidents, making driving safer. It's about these things, which where we really, I think have a, a bigger and bolder perspective now on what we do to the world. Those are all very good points. So you have been on the NXP's executive management team since 2009. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, the yeah. reason I know that is because we made our IPO in, uh, in summer of 2010. And ah. I joined indeed about, well, three quarters before that. So right. <laughs> I was thrown into Wall Street <laughs> as a member <laughs> of the executive <laughs> management team. Uh, but yeah, so that was the master team at the end of 2009. And forgive me for my lack of knowledge here, but how many people are on this ex exclusive executive management team? Well, that's been, I mean, it's, it's, it's changing, but say it's somewhere between uh, six and 15 people. All right. So that must have given you the opportunity to see how Rick Clemmer works up close and personal. What are the most important lessons you've learned from Rick? 
Well, first of all, since you give me the floor here, had you asked me what is really, what are defining elements in my career, then yeah. certainly one of them is the leaders I could learn from. Um, wow. And probably the most uh, influential leader on me, also given the time I've spent with him, is Rick Klemmer. Uh, that's definitely a very big privilege I've had yep. to work with him, for him, for such a long time. What have I learned? Not just as an abstract conceptual mm. thing, mm -hmm. but how to live it in practice every single day in a, in a, big, in a big company. Uh, ah. And I'm very thankful for having learned that lesson over, um, over an extended period of time. You could also say priority setting, um, mm. which is this very, very sharp perspective on what do you want to do very, very much better than everybody else. And you have probably heard from one of my colleagues earlier the concept about relative market share, mm -hmm. which is the whole idea to, to lead in a certain segment, technology segment or a customer segment or an application segment, not only being number one, but actually being two times bigger than your next competitor. Um, because that propels you in a position to really out-innovate all of your competitors. Because it's really a matter of, uh, of uh, investment also. Because, you know, if you spend 16% R&D of your revenue, you have twice the revenue of your next competitor in a certain segment. That mm -hmm. actually means you spend twice the dollars to out-innovate competitors. That is something Rick has, he, he made it a mantra in the company. So that's, that's what focus means in practice. That's one thing I learned. And the other one, and I, there's no more than those two because both are, I think, very powerful. Rick has, has always uh, incorporated for me the passion, uh, the company, the business, the customer relations. Uh, that, that for me has always been a big example, leading mm. by example in how, you, in how you are what you do. Given that you've been the president of NXP since 2018, I'm assuming that your current business strategy for NXP is not going to suddenly change, right? It is well aligned with the one laid out by Rick Clemmer. That said, you are Kurt Sivers, not Rick Clemmer. How do you describe differences between Rick and yourself as far as personality, temperament, and management styles are concerned. Uh, I'd say, uh, really, yes. The 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 say the business model, the financial strategy, the financial model, the the key portfolio elements. That is something where I I I had the, all the time the privilege already right, to put my signature under it and actually mm -hmm. forming it. Um, Rick has left me a lot of freedom in doing this over the last year. So no, this is not going to change because yeah. it's mine. Yeah. <laughs> so now, it will be constantly evolving, but you are absolutely right when you say right. this is probably not going to change. Where I think I'm going to further evolve the company on top of what Rick has been doing, I would actually uh, give you two elements. One is what I call innovation culture, uh, and the and I expand on this in a minute. And the other one is the the people aspect. I'm personally inspired by leading teams, by mm -hmm. inspiring teams, by engaging teams. And I'm mm -hmm. a big believer in the fact that the best connected team is the best competitive weapon you can have. Uh, technology is important. Uh, I think customer satisfaction is important. There is so many important KPIs. 
But I believe the most sustainable competitive weapon in our industry is the best uh, engaged team. The reason I say that, and that comes then back to the innovation culture, is that our technology and what we do has become so complex, Junko. Yeah. Nobody can do that alone. I mean, the I, I'm I just mm. I'm absolutely convinced it always needs a lot of people. Yeah. Typically cross borders, across often even different across different professions. So physics people to talk to software people to talk to hardware people to talk to account managers. And that company, which is in the best position to connect all of these brains in an mm -hmm. engaged way, such that they are fascinated by what they do and what they mm -hmm. do together, that's mm -hmm. going to have the biggest competitive advantage. And that is where I think we can, we can propel NXP into another league. I think we, can, we are good, but we can become much better in, uh, in, in those two elements. And in terms of the personal style differences? Between you and Rick? Well, that that's probably is a people is a people focus, which is uh, which is more uh, emphasized uh, with me. Given my background, I also have a very natural attraction and and passion for uh, innovation. I mean, I'm I'm just attracted by by what technology can do. Uh, so I think that gives indeed a bit more of a of an emphasis in that direction. While okay. maybe Rick has has been uh, very focused on financial. Metrics and that kind of stuff, but these are nuances. I mean, but still, yeah. the point is indeed the model stands, but the person Kurt Sievers is different to Rick, and that's yeah. going to give a certain character to the company. Very good. Now, obviously, we live in this world where significant disruptions have taken place due to the pandemic. We can't be blind to that. I cannot imagine if there are any more challenging time or the worst time to become the CEO of $8.9 billion chip company. So what do you think? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, on the cover page, I agree with you. Uh, yeah. and, and admittedly, Junko, when I was uh, when I was publicly announced early mm -hmm. March into the process, I probably would not have expected it ends up in such a uh, deep pandemic uh, situation. I mean... Yeah. We saw the early signs then, but it wasn't clear it would uh, it would um, sure. develop the way it did. Absolutely fair point. However, I would also not have expected how the team, how the company uh, has incredibly flexibly adapted to this situation. I mean, it's had you asked me ten weeks ago, can our R and D force, for example, with ninety percent of the people working at home. Can yeah. they still deliver NPIs? Can they still do tape outs on time? Uh, yep. Can they still improve test patterns and stuff? I would have probably said no. This will be will be very very difficult. Now the reality is, Junko, that people have been so much leaning into this. Yeah. We don't see any degradation in in R and D productivity. I think our customer relations are standing strong, holding strong through this pandemic. In spite of the fact that people cannot meet each other uh, uh -huh. physically, but but have to do it all like we do here on video yeah. or in audio, and what that all means is, Junko, that I think it has created an enormous sense of unity in the company mm. in the face of this pandemic. Now, again, I don't praise myself for this. I mean, this is something which has happened over the past uh, weeks and months, but from that perspective, I actually see this situation 
to the extent where we cannot control it anyway, as something which is actually helping the company to unite and, and yep. stand strong. I mean, it's, it's a strong sense of, of unity, which is cool. However, I hope as, a, as humankind we master this situation and control this situation soon, because mm -hmm. clearly the economic impact is, is very hard to predict, is not easy to deal with, um, and, uh, and therefore, clearly, without it, it would have been an easier starting point. But still, seeing what energy in this company is alive in the face of such a situation, it actually fills me with even more confidence on, on what yeah. we can achieve as a team. That's, that's a, again, that's a finding I would have never forecasted, but since <laughs> today, this is yeah. where we are. So now let's talk about the short-term strategy. What's on your to-do list right now in order to navigate this uncertain time? The, the highest priority is, the, and that's, that's around COVID-19, uh, continue to protect health and safety of our people in, yep. this, in this complex environment, mm -hmm. while at the same time, of course, uh, granting as much as we can business continuity to our customers. I mean, employees first, but I also need to see that through this, and the two are connected with each other, mm -hmm. uh, we have to make sure that we continue to have our supply chains in good shape, uh, we continue to do our R&D services and whatever have you uh, to our customers. So that's number one, which yep. is very operational, but given yep. the current environment, it is, uh, it is clearly top of my mind. With that being say, taken care for, which is, mm -hmm. which is a constant effort, um, my next focus clearly moves to, um, to what I said about innovation culture. And in that, protecting the core investments of the company, the face of this economic situation. I believe we have the right strategy. I believe where we are investing in, in terms of uh, products, solutions, customers, will be an enormous asset after COVID-19. So what, what I try to do is to be as cost efficient as we can in the face of this situation with, mm -hmm. I mean, we have impact on our revenues, so we have mm -hmm. to be very cost conscious, but I absolutely want to do this in a way which protects the core investments into our future, because I want to be sure NXP will emerge stronger out of this situation. Um, and that's a balancing act but I, I think we are well on the way so far. So where do you put your money when you talk about core investment? Well, core investments are, um, I'd say, in what we call secure edge processing. Uh, mm. I mean, I know that you are a very intimate uh, uh, insider almost of NXP, yeah, yeah. so you know what I'm yeah. speaking about. But we, yeah. we have this fantastic leadership in processing solutions from simple microcontrollers all the way up to layerscape high-performance uh, processes. But we have it now surrounded by security. And you remember my speech about security yeah. years ago, that, that's yeah. even more important today. We have it surrounded by functional safety, uh, which you need for everything which is, which is automated and which is like robotics. Uh, we have it surrounded um, by connectivity. Mind you, the, the acquisition we did uh, from Wait. the connectivity assets from Marvell. And we continue to play the card of, uh, I mean, people used to call it analog attach, but that's the idea of having a very well-matching power management unit. Um, with our processes that forms a secure edge processing 
um, solution to customers. So solution means it's more than a component. It is something that helps the customer to get rapidly into production because customer gets a more complete solution. Now, why do I say this, Junko? Because my belief is this next decade in yeah. semiconductors is going to be driven by edge processing volume deployments. For me, the world is simple, and, and you know better than I do that it, the world is always more complex than how I put it here. But very simply speaking, if you think 1990 to 2000, uh, 2000 to 2010, the world was all about laptop computers, mainframes, and that was driving growth. Yeah. The last 10 years, it was about smartphones, tablets, and cloud computing. I believe the next 10 years mm -hmm. will be characterized by massive mass deployment and growth of edge processing solutions. So edge devices across all different industries. So mm -hmm. our future is in edge processing. I mean, we will never be a full hardcore mobile company. We will right. never be a full hardcore cloud computing company. I mean, we do bits and pieces to these things, but what we are is an edge compute company with everything you need around. Security, safety, analog attach, connectivity. There's more of Junko's interview with NXP CEO Kurt Sievers on the EE Times website at www.eetimes.com, where she asks him what kinds of challenges he might have faced taking over a close to $9 billion company during a pandemic and a lockdown. There's also a link to that story on the page with this episode's transcript. Over the decades, computer security experts have been devising stronger and stronger cryptography in response to the development of ever more capable computers. When the most advanced algorithms in use today were adopted, their developers were confident they would remain unhackable for decades, given projections of how common computing systems would develop. What some of them failed to anticipate was how rapidly uncommon computers would get developed. Quantum computers promise to represent an astounding leap in computer performance, and the threat is that quantum computers are certain to blow right past security algorithms thought unbreakable just a few years ago. So the industry is working feverishly on new crypto that might stand up to quantum computers. Their efforts are being organized by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. Some of the brightest engineers, physicists, and mathematicians in the world are participating. They come from universities around the world, various research institutions, and companies including Intel, Microsoft, ARM, NXP, and IBM. In various combinations, they submitted more than 80 ideas. After a couple of years of testing, NIST is down to roughly two dozen proposals. One of the people participating in development of new quantum-proof algorithms is crypto specialist Helena Hanshu, who works with Rambus. We asked Hanshu to first explain the threat that quantum computing poses for cryptography. Um, so quantum computing, what is new with it for us in the security world is that it allows to um, massively parallelize certain computations that we care about. Uh, and that usually brings security to us. Um, but in this case, the quantum computer might be able to break systems that we use every day, and that would not be so good. Uh, so for example, um, 
If you think about uh, TLS connections, HTTPS connections, certificates, they use uh, a crypto primitive uh, called asymmetric cryptography. And these are algorithms that could be rather easily broken with uh, quantum computers because these computers are able to find, uh, let's say, periodic behavior that usually gives us security. <laughs> so um, in this case, they would be able, uh, if they had enough uh, storage in them, enough qubits, right, the equivalent quantum bits, um, if they had enough of them, they would be able to break the algorithms we use to establish secure connections on the internet, for example. So uh, we need to be careful about that and we need to work uh, on, you know, uh, possible replacements. Uh, so as I understand it, um, the, the, the cryptographic elements you have right now, the expectation was that uh, compute power uh, would be inadequate for decades and decades, perhaps forever? Um, or was it always just a matter of keeping a couple steps ahead of um, the state of the art in computing? Yeah, so the algorithms we use today are designed in such a way that the secret keys that they use uh, will allow them to resist attacks for many, many decades. So we uh, design the sizes of the keys such that, you know, even with the entire computation power of the entire world, you couldn't break them, you know, let's say in 50 to 100 years. Uh, so that's the idea. Uh, now, the issue with quantum computers is that this time that would be, you know, hundreds of years potentially uh, is broken down to just maybe a few days. That's where the problem comes from. Let me ask you, is quantum computing, uh, the state of the art in quantum computing today, is it today capable of uh, breaking these, these keys? Or do you anticipate it that quantum computers will be able to do so sometime soon? Yes, yeah, so today quantum computers are not yet able to break our algorithms, which gives us some time. Mm. <laughs> uh, they can typically... Uh, they can typically, you know, store and work with a few qubits, a few is maybe a few tens, but not more than that. And our uh, asymmetric crypto keys are more in the thousands of hundreds or thousands of bits. So they're still too small and too unstable to store enough to break our algorithms today. But uh, there's been progress made over uh, the last few years. Uh, so we can't, you know, exclude that in maybe 10 or 15 years from now, they will be uh, strong enough and big enough to be able to break all that. Okay, so why we're here is that you and colleagues at Rambus and at, at other companies are looking at strengthening the cryptographic, uh, um, the cryptographic protections, right? Uh, so what we're doing at Rambus uh, and, you know, other companies and uh, other uh, academic institutions out there are doing the same thing is that we have submitted a candidate algorithm to a competition organized by NIST, which is the National Institute for Standards and Technology. Um, this competition started a few years ago, end of 2017, and is currently uh, in a third phase. Um, and so we've submitted an algorithm that is called Three Bears and that we, you know, hope will make it to the last round at least. 
Uh, we're currently moved from the first round to the second round, and the next round will start approximately this summer. Uh, so we're hoping to be able to um, propose an, a candidate that would withstand uh, the computation power and uh, the attacks that might be running on quantum computers. Is it better to have a toolbox than one single tool? Uh, yes, absolutely. So NIST has been running such competitions mm -hmm. in the past for other types of algorithm. And in the past, there's always been one single winner. Uh, but this time, I think it will be a little bit different. So they are planning to have a portfolio of winning algorithms, uh, two different categories, uh, key exchange and signature algorithms. And in both of these categories, there will be a few different winners, so to speak, because nobody really knows yet uh, you know, if any new attacks will be devised against the algorithms that we're building today. It takes a long time to design mm -hmm. good crypto algorithms. Uh, you have to study them for many years. And so what we're doing is that we're trying to see that all the different submitters that have uh, built their algorithms on different style of difficult mathematical problems uh, will be somehow included in the final portfolio so that we have different choices that in case, you know, one of them goes down, we still have a few others. Um, maybe we have in that final portfolio um, few different categories, such as an older algorithm that's been around for a long time, but that is maybe a bit slow. Uh, and then we have a much newer one that is much faster, but we, we're not 100% sure about the security levels yet and so on. So we want to be able to um, kind of balance out the risk. And therefore, we think NIST will be convinced to select uh, um, a different number, not just one uh, in each of these categories. Let's uh, let's skip ahead. Uh, this comp let's uh, skip ahead to the point where this competition is decided one way or another. Um, the next steps would be uh, implementing one or several of these these algorithms, um, whatever appears to be effective. Um, and and as we've seen. Um, you know, cryptography is always a, a process of trying to keep ahead of, of whoever's trying to break the crypto. Um, I imagine that, at, that the companies that would end up implementing these security technologies would be thinking of ways to implement them in such a manner that if one kind of technology went down, uh, you'd be able to swap in uh, a different uh, you know, different algorithm, perhaps. Is that in fact the case? Are, are you already looking ahead to to how you'd actually implement this stuff, or or is that counting chickens before they're hatched? Uh, no. So we always try to look ahead a little bit because you know, once it start being needed, it will it will be a <laughs> <Yeah>. rush. So <laughs> let's start today. Uh, so we at Rambus have started prototyping a number of these different algorithms, the ones that we think have a good chance of passing to the next round and final round. Um, we have started prototyping some of them in software on our uh, root of trust products. Um, and we are next step going to uh, go for hardware prototyping as soon as uh, the next round kind of finalists or semi-finalists are announced. So around this summer. Uh, but we're not the only ones. I think uh, there is many other companies that have started doing so as well. And most notably, um, the infrastructure or the cloud companies 
have started making um, different trials with some of their own candidates uh, that they have included in to new versions of the TLS and HTTPS protocol, which is the protocol to communicate securely on the internet. Uh, so for example, Google and Amazon and Microsoft, all three of them have started trials where they included for one of them in Chrome, the other one has built a TLS version called S2N and Microsoft has built a library called Open Quantum Safe. So they're trying it out um, in a way that is as flexible as possible uh, so that, you know, one candidate, not only theirs, but maybe another one could be substituted if anything happened to theirs or if theirs wasn't selected or something. Um, and the reason for that is that they have a lot of um, background knowledge about how difficult it is to swap out crypto algorithms. Crypto agility has always been difficult. Uh, they have been, you know, struggling over the past 10, 15 years to exchange a simple hash function from MD5 to SHA-1 to SHA-2. Uh, so they know what it means to try to swap crypto algorithms. So this time they're starting very early um, so that, you know, as much time is available to make it as easy as possible in the future to swap Fantastic. things out. Fantastic. Would that... Um... What what would that look like? Would that is that essentially a, um, you know I think people are are somewhat familiar with the the notion of a firmware update. There uh, there the notion of software updates. Um, what what would crypto agility actually look like in in practice? It would mean that you need to substitute some of the firmware, indeed, at least in the in the crypto libraries used by uh, by infrastructure uh, industry and by cloud mm. companies and so on. Um, and that means that you have to write a kind of new type of software stack that allows for these kinds of changes. These algorithms usually run very close to the hardware, if not mm. in hardware itself. <laughs> it's always very close, very low in the stack. So the way to build these stacks, software stacks, needs to be rethought a little bit. And that's what they're working on today. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, we've looked at other industries in the past. For example, the banking sector has tried to change an algorithm. It took them easily 10 or 15 years as well. So we all know how difficult it is, but this is the right time to try to adapt the entire stack so that the algorithms did just the little piece there, including the size of the keys and the bandwidth you have to deal with when you exchange from one algorithm uh, to the other yeah. uh, can be dealt with. So um, I've dabbled in covering um, uh, cybersecurity for, for some time. And I think um, one of the things I hear consistently is um, we can provide, you know, coming from from the industry, uh, we can and do provide um, security tools. Um, one of the biggest struggles is getting our customers to use them or use them properly. Um, is this going to be a perpetual problem once we get into the quantum era? Um, I think that doesn't change too much with the quantum era. It will be just the same. <laughs> People, you know, everybody would love to have security everywhere, just include it just by itself and not have to worry about it. Uh, but unfortunately, security is an arms race, right? You have to, there's attackers, they come up with, you know, new ideas and have plenty of 
brilliant ways of trying to break your system uh, that they come up with every day. So you have to constantly evolve your systems in many different aspects. Uh, and I don't think that will stop. You know, it's not we're gonna, not going to solve it once and forever. Uh, but at least the mathematical side, the algorithm side, the crypto side is something we're hoping to address with this, uh, with these new post-quantum uh, crypto algorithms. Uh, but the rest of it will will continue, I would assume. Right. Um, do you have any opinion about threat vectors? Quantum is deeply weird and deeply complex, and there are only so many um, organizations around the world um, in a position to even explore the technology. Um, is the exoticism likely to provide uh, a bit of uh, uh, of an inoculation or, or at least a, a time delay before you really honestly have to worry about quantum hacking? Um, I think that the, the way that the algorithms would be broken on such quantum mm. computers so that the technique is already known mm. today. This is something that people have been thinking about. Uh, what is difficult is to build the computers and, and to make them stable enough and get enough qubits to realize mm. the attacks. But the attacks themselves have already been uh, published. There's Shor's algorithm, there's Grover's algorithm. Uh, so these are things that are already known. So I, I don't think, you know, that's there's not that much time except for the time it takes to build the uh, the computing element uh, and make it stable. Okay. <laughs> So we, we better get started. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like we already have. <laughs> Before we go, is there anything that I didn't ask about that um, you feel is is pertinent or or vital or 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 just interesting about um, quantum and uh, cyber attacks? Uh, yeah, maybe one or two yeah. other points. Uh, one thing that we need to think about is that quantum computers in everybody's mind is something that's great for solving problems that are difficult today because it helps society move mm. forward, right? It can compute so much faster. It can solve problems so much faster for everybody else that everybody is thinking in terms of, uh, is looking at it in a, in a positive sense, very positive sense. So it's a race to build a quantum computer because it's good for humanity, so to speak, right? So we in security, we look at it from the other angle. So we're looking at it from the angle of, okay, now when it exists, it's going to break things that we had today that we thought were secure. Um, and that's a problem because a lot of the data that we're trying to secure today might be recorded today and might still be available you know, in 10, 15 years from now. So when these computers exist in the future, you will be able to go back retrospectively and break information from the past. Now, this might not be, mm -hmm. you know, a worry for day-to-day -day activity for everybody, but there's some industries in some areas that need to keep secrets for, you know, 50 years and longer, and those will be issues for them. So this is why we need to look into it today and be aware that these will exist in the future uh, and finish our competition as fast as possible. The NIST program's formal title is Post-Quantum Cryptography Standardization. As Hanshu just told us, the project is in its third round and NIST is expecting to winnow the number of proposals from roughly two dozen to just a few of the very most promising. 
This round could be concluded and standards finalized as early as 2022. And here we find ourselves at the point in the podcast where we like to note the anniversaries of great moments in technology history. This week, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to... June 1st, 1979. That was the day Intel introduced the 8088, the processor that IBM chose for its original PC line. It was the device that Intel credits with propelling it into the Fortune 500. It's worth pointing out that the 8088, which pushed the x86 architecture to market dominance, did not have a name appended with an 86. In 1978 and into 1979, Intel was working on the 8086, which was going to be the company's first 16-bit CPU. Jumping from 8 bits to 16 bits was going to drive the next big leap in microprocessing compute power. Intel management was hedging its bets in secret, however. The 8088 was going to be, as Intel engineer Stephen Moore once put it, quote, a castrated version of the 8086, unquote. It would process data in 16-bit words, just like the 8086, but the 8088 would have an 8-bit external data bus. The existence of the 8088 was so hush-hush that most of the engineers working on the 8086 didn't even know about it. To keep it quiet, Intel management had shipped off the project to the company's operations in Israel. The modification was a masterful marketing maneuver. Incorporating an 8-bit bus essentially meant the 29,000 transistor 8088 required fewer, less expensive support chips than the 8086. Intel founder Robert Noyce and legendary designer Ted Hoff co-authored a paper in 1981 in which they explained that having an 8-bit bus meant the 8088 would have, quote, full compatibility with 8-bit hardware while also providing faster processing and a smooth transition to 16-bit processors, unquote. That all made it appealing to IBM, which used the 8088 in its Model 5150, a monochrome PC that cost only $3,000 when it was introduced. IBM's PC line, eventually joined by PC clones, would end up dominating the desktop market. The 8088's descendants still dominate some markets today. This is Bob Noyce in 1981. I think the most important thing about what has happened in the integrated circuit business, the computer business, is that it has made computing power very, very inexpensive. Each of us has his, our own calculator now. Um, there's been a lot of concern that this might turn us all into morons. It might be the same thing as suggesting, however, that the steam engine would all turn us all into jellyfish. That, indeed, the availability of this kind of equipment has enhanced our lives, not uh, detracted from it. Forty years later, and many of us have got the equivalent of a PC in our pockets, and no, we haven't all become morons, right? That's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, and Blueberry. But if you get to the podcast via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned and sometimes other goodies. Visit 
www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by Aspencore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Craig McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.